that had a wax on it that I did not realize because the wax was the same color of the cheese, and I feel like that should be illegal. Um, you know what? You could also just take a second to identify your food before you eat it. Um, I think I'm pretty sure the Neanderthals figured that one out, and it is genetically passed down through generations. Mm. Um, it may have skipped. It may have skipped a generation here, but yeah, I'm very skeptical of this looking at things before I eat them thing. Sure, right, right. You know, <laughs> it's better to just eat with your eyes shut. Generally, uh, apparently, that's supposed to like enhance the flavor and stuff, don't you? Have there's like those restaurants that are all pitch black. It's a thing. Um, there is a restaurant that just opened up. One is in London, and another opened up in Japan. Um where the whole experience is that you eat at the restaurant completely naked. That's terrifying and gross. Well, here's the best part. So they opened this restaurant up, and in Japan, they essentially have a rule that says you cannot be larger than the median weight. So <laughs> there's there's a no fatty rule. <laughs> Never mind. I'm on board now. I mean, I want to be allowed to go unless I lose a few pounds, but – Really funny though, right? They basically want pretty people only. Which I don't blame them. If the waiters and waitresses have to look at ugly fat people all day and naked, they're gonna you're gonna have a high turnover. But if they could look at pretty people, well, what's amazing get to me is people. that it's Jap- what No, no, no. What's amazing to me is that it's Japan that instigated the no fatty rule because Japanese people aren't really that large. This seems like a rule that really, really should have been implemented in London. Yeah, definitely. Of all places, like I don't want a bunch of pasty, flabby Brits eating around me because I won't have an appetite. Question: Are the wait and cooking staff also naked? I doubt it. That's probably a health code yeah, violation. It seems, I had to seems very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, just don't fry bacon naked, as friends. I've I've definitely me. done that before. You're an idiot. I know. <laughs> we right. are not arguing this fact. Sure. <laughs> no, you. Yeah, you're stupid. You're. <laughs> we are all aware, aware, well aware of my stupidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also learned that. Uh, yeah, you know what? We're not even going down that track. I want to know what um, we learned. What have I learned today, Stephen? <laughs> we learned today that if you want to go be surrounded by a bunch of flabby British people, you can go eat at a naked restaurant. You'll lose your appetite, and it's one of the hottest dieting trends of the 20s. Is to eat naked? No, to lose weight by eating naked in a room with other naked people. I feel like just – Because I guarantee – I guarantee – that the first time you see a naked person trying to eat a hamburger and you watch as the burger like goes through their throat and then you see like their stomach kind of distend a little bit as the food hits, no, like you're going to realize is- way too many things about the digestive tract and you are going to swear off eating for the rest of the year. That will be your New Year's This resolution. is not a bad idea. I'm telling you, it is, it is equal parts um, dystopian nightmare and – Everything I learned about being naked in public from Seinfeld. There's good naked and there's bad naked. True. Eating in public is a bad naked. I think I really like this plan and I think this is my new dieting strategy is to just eat naked at all times. No, no, no. It it doesn't matter if you are naked. Other people around you I have feel to like it would naked. matter if you were naked. If you're like physically being aware of your stomach what like visually at the same time you're eating – I feel like that would have a. Do you stare effect. at your stomach while you no, eat? No, but like, 
It's I don't know. Like you might have scoliosis. I mean, I do have a bad. Your back. spine is fucked, dude. You know what I meant, even if I didn't. <laughs> supposed to be uh-huh. able to translate my errant thoughts into coherency. Well, it's more fun if I. Don't. I know, but that's like your main job as my friend, <laughs> just to make sense no. of me. <laughs> to me, definitely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I resign. Aw, that's very sad. <laughs> yep, sorry, find a new friend, bud. Well, shit. <laughs> I'm friend divorcing you. <laughs> that's very depressing. Please don't say that. Um... That's okay. I tell you what, you can keep the house, I'll keep the dog. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'd rather be homeless. You hear that, Damien? Well, so you're going to be a naked homeless man eating... In a park with other naked people. I, this sounds like you're going to get arrested. I mean, let's be honest. If someone was to guess 10 years ago who would be in 10 years the naked homeless person living on the streets, most people would guess me. Fair. I mean, I would guess that about you, like, future you. <laughs> so starting now, 10 years out, I imagine that's probably likely. Well, that's depressing i'd like to think i kind of have my life together where's the fun in that true you don't need to get your life together until you are at least 40 true very true oh i was having this debate today today debate today today i don't know why i said that twice um when does middle age begin uh, I mean, like your 40s. Yes, but specifically, is there a, is it just turning 40? I said 45. I said you can't be considered middle-aged until you're at least 45. No, it's 40 because um, once you turn 40, that's considered to be over the hill. Like that's your over the hill birthday. Gotcha. So culturally, I think once you turn 40, you're considered middle-aged. I still like, feel like 40 is a little young for that, but eh. Whatever. No, because like not many people make it to 90. And that would be middle age if you're – like 45 would be middle age if you're going to make it to 90. I think hitting 80 is at least reasonable for most people. But once you hit your 80s, like you're probably going to die in the next 10 years. Okay. Well, all this is depressing and makes me feel like I've done Why nothing with my life. I hope I die in my 80s. If I make it to my 90s, that's the depressing part of this story. Ugh. Okay. Well <laughs> – Weird. Have you visited a nursing home? They smell weird. Stop it. I don't like thinking about old age and my own mortality. Dude, you're going to die. I'm aware of this. I don't want to dwell on it, though. Why? Because it's part of the human experience. Dwelling on your own mortality. We have a 100% mortality rate. I'm talking over Steven now. Um, We are coming to you on what is our last episode of the season. I'm not coming on to anyone. All right, I am a married man. You're coming here to you, that's what I said. Did I say coming on? No. Uh, it's what I heard. It's very difficult to flirt with people via a podcast, but um, sure. Clearly you've never tried phone sex. No, but their phone sex, they're responding to you. Podcast, we're oh, just... I didn't say you call a Speaking out into the hotline. ether. You just... No, Joel. Joel, you just dial a random number and you go for Again, it. Again, they can still <laughs> respond. <laughs> Our audience is not able to respond to us, so this is a very – this is if, – If they're responding, you clearly called the wrong number. The best way for this to go okay. is you call and they are just on – like horrified on the other You are not line. describing phone sex. You are describing phone rape. Mm, both, no, too both far. Parties, took that joke too both far. Both parties have to be participating for it to be sex. 
No, you, you took that joke too far. You can't you can't joke about rape. There's like one comedian who does I'm it. I'm not and joking. It's like funny, but it makes oh wow, now you're not no, joking you're about raping. You're the one who's phone raping Joel. people. Joel, you can't say those things. <laughs> That's essentially you're essentially using the N-word of like sexual abuse. Okay, so you, nothing you, is the N-word but the N-word. If you up. can say it, it's not an N-word. <laughs> What was that? I said nothing is the N-word but the N-word. There isn't an N-word of other things. If you can say it, what it's N-word? not the N-word. What are you talking about? Why are you saying N-word so many because times? reasons. We're here today no. as what we are decided on a whim is our final episode of season one. Um, this will probably be the last episode that comes out on a Friday because getting something edited midweek is stressful and annoying. So we're going to have these come out on earlier in the week starting in season two and we have probably a bunch of other changes for season two, but that's the definite one I know about right now. We also have some guests lined up for season two and we'll probably take a little break while we come up with new logos and stuff like that. Um, anything you want to add to that little tiny announcement? No, I think that's it. Okay. But if that, I don't know, weird, early announcement turned you off at all to the episode you're in store for a fun one because this episode is the reason this podcast was created we are talking about the king killer chronicle i keep pausing assuming steven is going to jump in with other things to say but he is being unusually silent i don't know how to feel about this (laughs) And now he's doing it just because I mentioned it, and I'm going to edit all of this part out because I sound like a crazy person. Oh my god, say something. <laughs> this isn't fun. <laughs> I hear you breathing, I'm kind of laughing. Say something, you asshole. I'm going to call your wife and tell her to kill you. <laughs> Well, my wife's in Chicago, so we're good. Yeah, have you ever been to a live theater performance and you're sitting in the audience and then all of a sudden the person who's acting on stage completely forgets their line and you just like feel it in your yes, gut? Yes, this is how I you felt are that just whole time. In the audience. And yeah, that was what I was really hoping was the feeling you were getting. Just that moment of sheer panic where you're like, dude, I need someone to feed me a line. I'm ruining the play. I don't know what to do anymore. Help. It was not fun. I don't like it. I don't like it, it at amazing. all. I enjoyed every second. Of course of you did. You're the worst. That was the highlight of my day. <sighs> well. So anyways, uh, as you said, we'll be talking about the Kingkiller Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss. And since we're both talking about the same book, I don't know how you decide who goes first because alphabetically we're both in the same This book. is true. Well, first we should give some background information about – I think we've said this story multiple times. But tell me about why this Kingkiller Chronicle is the reason this podcast exists from your point of view. And then I'll explain my point of view on it. Um, and we should also say the King Killer Chronicle is a series of books that is only two-ish books long right now. The first one's called The Name of the Wind, and the second one is called A Wise Man's Fear. But there are also multiple short stories and novellas, um, including How Old Holly Came to Be, The Lightning Tree, and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, um, which I will at least have some mentions of those in some of the stuff I want to talk about today. 
And I don't read that crap because I don't like encouraging authors to write short stories when they just need to finish up their damn trilogy already. This is fair. Yeah. So I haven't read any of George Martin's um, ancillary works because that dumb bastard needs to finish his series before diabetes gets to him. Well, this is He's a big not boy. Untrue. Anyways, um, yeah, I don't even know where I was going with that. What were we talking you about? You were going to explain. My brain just You were going to give the reason. Um, the oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay. So we were, I, we were in college, and um, I was reading The Name of the Wind, which is the first book, and I thought it was great. And so I recommended it to you to read because the uh, main character had red hair and I thought you would identify. Yes, specifically – Because you also are a ginger. Specifically, that is all he told me about the book is that it's a fantasy book where a right. kid learns magic and he has red hair. So you would like it. I'm like, right. I don't just read things about other genders. That's not like – And to be fair, you're pretty self-obsessed. But that's not my so entire personality. Like at the time. Yeah, so I didn't mm, – But it's enough that I thought it would get you interested. It did not. It, it kind of – uh, offended me that he thought I was going to be interested just because of the red hair. Not really, but I didn't have any really reason to read it. Um, so I didn't for something like five years until we were both graduated and you had uh, moved back to Kansas after spending a year in China. Then I finally picked up the books and began reading it. And I texted you about it one day. It was like, holy crap, this is the best book I've ever read. Have you ever heard of The Name of the Wind? And Stephen was very angry. Yeah, I almost came unglued. <laughs> I like uh, if I. It's a good thing that I am not the president because I would have ordered a drug strike. <laughs> he was livid, but it's all good. Dumb idiot. So now, when we give each other recommendations, we do it on the air and we give in-depth reasons for why you should read the book, and that's what started this podcast. So we figured it would be a good. Ending point for the first round of things um, and something we had had to cover eventually. If and when The Doors of Stone, which will be the third book in the series, ever comes out, we will probably do a huge breakdown of that book as well. But for now, I want to talk about the amazing things that are the King Killer Chronicles so far. You know what? I'm going to be honest. I don't think Rothfuss is ever actually going to finish out the trilogy, and here's why. Okay. That guy took nine years to get his bachelor's degree <laughs> that's nine fair. years and i almost i finished mine in three and a half and you did too he took three times as long to finish a very simple degree he got his bachelor's in english i know i understand i almost would be okay with it never being answered because for some reason and not even for some reason i'll probably get into why but this is the only book series I've ever like actually fan theorized about. I've reread the books specifically. I thought you were gonna say masturbated too. Specifically, I've reread those. <laughs> Edit that one. No, out. <laughs> I've reread these books specifically to um, confirm or deny fan theories. Before I've like researched stuff. I've looked up other languages translations of things, and I've never done that with any other books before because these things just grab your mind and control like it's just it's really really good uh so because you were wondering it's because of the red hair possibly <laughs> so you were wondering how we should structure this episode which is a good question i have oh, i was more just trying to get you to gotcha. start well i have you were four pages of notes um or at least outlines of notes 
and I <laughs> nerd. Right? I categorize them into things that are amazing, favorite theories, and theories I came up with. Um, should we give like a brief overview of the story, or should we just say, don't listen to this episode unless you've read the books, and everything from here on out is going to be spoilers? Yeah, no, I don't <laughs> feel any need to give the full story. Okay. I think if you've read we'll the give, books, you'll listen. As we talk if you about things, read the books, this is yeah. probably going to be. As we talk about things, as we go along, um, we'll explain some stuff that needs explanation. But otherwise, just basically, these books are amazing. Read them. If you haven't and don't want things spoiled, duck out now, and we'll see you next season. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. (laughs) What a bad ending to the first season. We're just going to completely cast off 80% of the audience who hasn't read it. You know what? Maybe we should... No, we should do a short. They can read it and come back. You know, you know what? Screw those guys. That, exactly. I don't care about them. They can come yeah. back. If they haven't read it, they aren't true believers. Right. right. Okay. It's okay. My favorite part of the book is when they cast the ring into the fiery pits of Mount Doom. That, okay. What is... I'm telling you, that is my favorite part of the book. When they what? Cast the ring into the fiery pits of Mount oh, Doom okay. from whence it came. That is, that is the best part of that book, but... We are not discussing No, that's the best that part book. of the book. Every book, <laughs> when they cast every the single ring. book is part of a meta-narrative. That is in Lord of the Rings. I do have a whole aside on page three of my notes about rings, so... <laughs> no, give me any book. I can tie it back to Lord of the Rings. Let's, that's actually a fun game. Let's not play it now. Because I feel like we're going to be talking about this for a while. <laughs> oh, that's fine. More people would stay tuned in. They wouldn't bow out on our final episode of the season they are not gonna bow out we don't have that many listeners anyways <laughs> that's true that's fine <clears throat> okay um i only want loyalists what were you okay do you want me to just again structure is difficult for this episode Dude, do whatever just just begin okay. so every story has a beginning middle and my end. favorite the things that were just absolutely amazing things i've never seen done in a book before that i absolutely love about this series I've put four of them down, um, are A, one of the earliest things that you read and saw and realized was going to be an amazing thing that you, every reader picked up on this one, not just the in-depth ones, was the seven words thing. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yep. Early on in the book, just one of his talking. mentors um, tells, quote, uh, the main character that there are seven words that will make a woman love you. Um, later on in the book, someone asks him specifically, do you know the seven words to make a woman love you? Uh, and you realize as a reader, the second time that's mentioned that him and his, uh, his femme fatale, his love interest, the main female character in the story, every time they interact again, cause her name is some combination of Dena or D, uh, every time D and Quoth meet up with each other again he says exactly seven words to each to her in the introduction and it's something that you pick up on in the first book and it lasts over the books and it happens when other characters that are in love meet each other like it's just repeated and it's an amazing thing that just i don't i mean it's not doesn't seem that hard to do but it's so well done that you don't I don't know. It, it just feels like a revelation when it happens. There is a list of all the times he said it that I'm going to open real fast and scroll through while Stephen makes a comment on this. 
nope, he's not going to make a comment anytime I tell him to make a comment. That's apparently going to be his running joke this time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, that's probably the worst running joke I've come up with. No, I, I agree with you. I think that it's just clever because it's one of those things where it's almost a setup for a joke and then the comedian doesn't actually say the joke um, because it's implied and you have to figure it out for yourself and that's where the fun right. is. You just have it's to kind notice. of that self-discovery of – Oh my goodness, every single time that Kvoth is talking to Denna, he's doing this thing. And I've been waiting for someone to tell me what these damn seven words are for the past 40 chapters. And it doesn't happen because that's not the point. And it's it's a really nice thing that gets layered into the book over and over and over again. Um, and it's not necessarily spelled out to you, but it is put in such a way that it's 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 just nice. So did you find yeah. your list or should I read it? Because I've been on it oh. for a while. <laughs> no, the very first one is I was wondering what you were doing here. And then that's when he very first meets her uh, as they're like traveling on a road uh, and they're like riding in the back of a wagon together. And then when they leave, he also says seven words saying, I'll see you. Where, I'll see you where the roads meet as like a formal. It's, it's a it, that's kind of repeated a little bit a few times, but it's never said that way. Uh, often it's I'll see you in Tenue, where all the roads meet is something that's established in the story. But he says he says it out all the way, so it's another seven words. And it's just really awesome that that just keeps happening. I think my favorite one is... Oh, I love, honestly, with that, I just like coming up with my own ones. Like, I hate you, you stupid, dumb idiot. Seven words, done. You're, you're right. Let's turn it around. <laughs> My favorite one is the um, uh, the last one in the first book or the second book. I can't remember, but it's I I need you to breathe for me when he um, or I need you to listen. I need to listen to your breathing when he saves Dena's life for the first time, uh, and that ties into the thematic of it's the name of the wind, and he wants to control the wind and know the name of the wind. So it gets repeated a lot. Breath is an important thematic element in the book. And I love that you know what's happening then because he later on starts um, pointing it out or the uh, the framing story starts pointing it out that, oh, that was seven words. Uh, and someone at one point says, you always do that, like reply exactly in seven words to her. And it's th that point, it's like nailed on the head and then you have to start looking for it each time if you haven't already gotten it which I like that, that even he gives you one whole book where he doesn't like specify it and then starts beating you over the head with it until you're absolutely looking for it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's real nice. So what was the next thing that the next, you thought was amazing? The, the next thing, and the reason I believe that this has so captured my imagination and makes me um, investigate the story so much is the layers in the story. This is, this is at its heart a story about storytelling. So... This book opens all book all of the books so far open and close with a short story kind of chapter that's only barely changed each time called The Silence in Three Parts and it's like a long form poetic you know there's a silence of three parts and you're trying to figure out what the silences are that's the opening and closing prologue chapter then the book opens again in the most traditional fantasy setting of all time a tavern people are getting drunk at an inn and telling a story, like telling another fantasy story. Then again, the next chapter opens a third time with a chronicler on the road, and the whole series is called The Kingkiller Chronicle, 
so you think maybe he's the main character. And finally, in the fourth opening of the story, it focuses in on the innkeeper, and he begins to tell his story, which is the main bulk of the books. Um, so you have just layer upon layer upon layer of storytelling. Uh, once you get into him telling his story, there are riddles and songs that you hear from different perspectives, and they're slightly changed, and each one offers interpretation on the other. There are three distinct creation myths that all kind of tie in together. There are multiple conflicting histories of the fantasy world they live in. And then there are multiple names for the same people again and again and again. And it just, with every new thing you learn, you realize it's a layered copy of something else you've heard. And it just keeps building on itself. And it's so in depth, but it's a fairly, like it seems like it should be a fairly simple story and it just keeps getting deeper. And it's, it's inviting you to study it more with every subsequent layer, which I love. And that's probably why I can't stop thinking about these stories. <laughs> well, I like um, that particular aspect of it just because it allows Rothfuss to create this whole um, un, uh, untrustworthy narrator. Mm -hmm. And the more that you get into the story, the more that you kind of start to think, wait, this entire story might be just complete fiction. Right. Um, because the first time you read through the book, you're like, ah, oh, this character's so cool. He's, you know, he's talented. He's smart. He's got beautiful people running around him. He has these fun adventures. But then if you really sit and think about it, you're like, wait a minute, this is a story that this guy is telling. And we don't even know for certain that he is who he says mm -hmm. he is. And everything that happens to him makes him into the coolest person imaginable, the smartest person in the room, the, you know, the, um, the victim of people around him or the hero to everyone who sees him. He makes friends easily. He has these interesting adventures. Um, and so you start to sit back and think, well, maybe what we're going to find out in the third book is that this is really just some guy stringing us all right. along. That, and I like that. I like that there's a bit of uncertainty about where the story's going and whether we should actually be listening to the narrator of the story in the first place. Those are actually most of my next two like favorite things about this book are the – is hey. that point is that um, it primes you. The story primes you with them talk – with the characters in the bar arguing about the character that you later find out is the innkeeper who's telling the story about his life. Um it primes you with them. He's already a figure of legend. The Chronicler was going to seek him out to learn his story. Uh, so it primes you with that. And then he starts telling you the story, and he, the main, the main character and narrator, keeps telling you that he's going to say the absolute truth. And he begins it by telling – like he's focusing on himself as a little kid and talking about all his flaws. And so you believe him at the beginning because he's priming you to believe him. It's got all this stuff, mm -hmm. and it builds up for a long time. He talks about how he ends up as like homeless yeah. and you know terrible yes. stuff. And he talks about how vain he is and all this stuff at the beginning, and then it gets into the end of the book. And by you know the crazy magic he's pulling off and the amazing stuff he's doing, you're you're ready to believe him throughout the whole first book. Mm -hmm. um, even when it breaks to the framing story a couple times, and he shows you how easy it is to manipulate and make up a story. That's one of my favorite moments in the first book is when 
The chronicler is trying to get him to tell a specific part of his story where he, you know, gets himself out of a legal jam. And the main character thinks it's boring, so he, also, he just glosses over it and moves on to the next thing. Uh, and so the chronicler tries to get other people who come into the inn for lunch to talk about that story and try to, to get him to tell it. So Quoth gets mad and makes up a legend on the spot about the chronicler, makes up like um, uh, crazy magic that he can pull off, which again, even that like crazy magic gets pulled in later in the next book. Um, but he makes all this stuff up and s- watches as the rest of the people in the end go along with it and pretend they've always known this story. And it shows you mm-hmm. it's, I mean, that's in the first book before you're ever really supposed to question the narrator, but right then it's spreading the seeds of this dude might be lying. And then in the second book, right. my, one of my absolute favorite things that I didn't even realize till well after I had finished the book the first time um, in the second book, he meets a member of the Fae named Felurian and she, every everything she says is in iambic pentameter and perfect meter. In, in fact, if you cut out all the narration around it and all the other people and all the Valerian said stuff, you can organize it into perfect sonnets. Long sonnets is everything she says, which is an amazing feat of writing, A, cool enough then, but B, obviously organized after the fact. Like – or, I mean, is it? She's a magical creature. Maybe that's how she normally speaks. Or maybe this guy who tells you from the beginning he's a storyteller at heart, he's a musician at heart, this is what he does, maybe he's romanticizing this up. And then after that fact, this is when it really ties into the he's not telling the full truth. He's embellishing things. Because up to this point, he's been awkward around women, women and all this stuff, and then he runs off into the Fae with basically Aphrodite – um, and then he comes back and every woman is falling into bed with him without him trying. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> this And even when he is with the Fae, with this Aphrodite-like character, the Aphrodite character is almost infamous for driving men mad with desire to the point that they actually go insane and then they die because she's more like a harpy than anything. Right. And magically, Kvoth, the main character, is able to resist her temptations even though i'm pretty sure at this point in the story he's a virgin um and so the idea that this guy who has never had sex with a woman is able to resolutely stand fast where all other men have failed and then come through this as the best lover in history is ridiculous and it's so it's this is the point where you're finally as a reader should be thinking how much of this is true and then – and it's so late in the second book that you've – if you've been reading it at face value, which it's hard to do completely face value, but even if you've been trying to read into it and trying to guess what's real and it's fake, at this point, the author is very clearly saying, hey, he's not that reliable. Like he's embellishing things. He's changing things and you got to look closely to see if you can catch what it is. And that's well mind-blowing. And, and – f- and for me, um, I know that that was the point where you started to question um, whether the author was telling the truth. The point for me where I started thinking one of two things, and I'll tell you what those two things were in a second, but it's where he meets the, um, oh, what's that guy's name from the um, tribe of people that know martial Tempe. arts and kind of speak with their hands? Yeah, so he meets that guy. I have a fun theory about him later on. Then, <laughs> Well, yeah, so he meets that guy and then – 
to get into shape, they just start running to get back to that guy's village. Mm-hmm. And they run for like 24 hours straight or whatever. And um, reading that, you think either one of two things. Either, oh man, this guy who wrote the book, Patrick Rothfuss, has clearly never ran a day <laughs> in his life. Or you think, all right, the storyteller is completely blowing this out of proportion because you would literally drop from exhaustion if you were trying to right. do this. And so that was the point where my brain was like, mm, But that's after, isn't that gonna... after he met Fleuran? Is it after? All... My chronology might the, be My chronology in that there. last book, always, I always forget the order of things in the final, in the second book because basically every, once See, he... I thought that what had happened, I thought that he went to the village and learned the martial arts and then he went to the Fae and then... He thought he was gone for forever, but he was only gone for like, what, three days? Gotcha. And then he goes back to um, the university. See, in my head, the timeline in my head that. is they you know, go out to find the bandits. They find and kill all the bandits. Um, and then he finds – then they go to – he goes to the Fae. And then he meets back up with them. And instead of taking the money directly back to the mayor, he goes with Tempe to learn sword, the sword dancing magic. Okay, you might be right. You've read it more recently than I gotcha. have. That's the timeline in my head, but I always get some of the order of things wrong in the end of the book because once he goes to the mayor, things start happening so quickly that I, yeah, I miss I mess up that timeline all okay. the time. So, but yeah, well, depending either way, on what the timeline was, yeah, I either noticed it, it at the face scene or at that scene. Like those were the two moments for me. Regardless. The moment for me was when uh, it was lit- it was after Florian. Like I could buy all the Florian, especially with the magic, st- the the music magic thrown at the end and the naming stuff. All that you know didn't break my um, sense of immersion. But then when he goes to the bar afterwards, and like both the women at the bar that he was like really afraid of talking to like jumped into bed with him. Um, that was when I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this doesn't make yeah. sense for his character or for like, like this is, this is can't be right. Yeah. So just nuts. That's fair. Oh, this might be something and we can save this for a second. Um, should I say something that I don't necessarily like about this? Oh, series? go ahead. Okay. So on that note, um, both goes out has sex with the leader of the Fae, comes back, and then, like, runs around the block 15 times. Yeah. Like, if there is a pretty woman nearby, he conquests. And that is, I guess, fine. But in the first book, um, Rothfuss makes, like, this real point of making sure that the girl that Kvothe has a crush on just literally never sleeps with anyone, even though she is a courtesan. Right. And, like, her whole deal is stringing men along and ideally like in a real world she would be sleeping with them but she never does and so it's kind of like this i almost feel like i can't decide if rothfuss is a bit of a misogynist and it's like "Uh, a man can sleep around as much as he wants but a woman must be pure and virginal before she is allowed to sleep with the main character see that that so i don't really like that for me it feels very much like a it feels very neck beardy yes like I am a man, so I must sow my seed. But if you are a woman, you must remain pure for no, me. No, but that's what, like, that's kind of what played into it for me, kind of revealing that he's an unreliable narrator, is that he presents all of this as he gets back as, um, I'm, you know, becoming a man now, and I, uh, I'm finally, 
attractive to ladies and I can get all this, which he's presenting this as a really good thing unashamedly um, and like making his character cooler when in reality that's a really shitty move to you've framed this entire story about how in love you are with D. Like that was a part of the breaking of he's not the best guy. Um, nah, see, I don't think that that's part of the unreliable narrator thing. I think that's like just a neck beardy. Cause I, I um, like, there's a lot of that opinion in people who are really into like that gotcha. subculture of actual humanity. <laughs> So I think like that might just be a little bit of latent misogynism creeping through to the surface. That's fair, but like there's we a- can we can to- I am completely happy giving Rothfuss the benefit of the doubt there. But when I was reading it, that's not how it came across. Okay. It came across a little more. No, that's a that's a fair. And it yeah. made me uncomfortable. See, my it made me uncomfortable too. Um, but it but I like I said, I'm more than happy to be like, yeah, Rothfuss is is smart enough that maybe that it was what he was intending. Gotcha. To do. It just for me, I didn't I didn't think of it that way. I immediately thought of it as. Um, so Kvothe might be the worst, like, and there's a bunch of other evidence of Kvothe might be a bad guy. Like he's, he might be the villain of this story. Um, uh, which is one of the well, theories. I think part of, the, I think part of the reason I, yeah, let's get back to that in a second. But I think part of the reason why I went a different route with that is that I've read a lot of fantasy and it's a very common thing for the men to be essentially sex gods and then the woman of their desire just literally never sleeps with anyone even if she's the most beautiful woman in the entire <sighs> fantasy world and then all of a sudden this guy sleeps around and then he gets to sleep with her even though she's never had sex in her life ah nope yeah that's a very fair point it's just kind of like a common thing right. that happens so in fantasy books well, did not address it as the trophy so, nature. So, both being the yeah, villain, so let's go this down is my next. Track. This was uh, my next section on my notes anyways is some of the popular theories. And this is one I didn't, I didn't think of on my own, but I totally buy into it as a possibility. Um, one thing Rothfuss has said over and over again about the story is that uh, it's not what it seems. We are missing something vital to understanding the story so, still. Um, uh, so... A lot of people have decided maybe Quoth is evil. Um, so one of the some of the points that they drive into this is um, he is telling this he's telling the story in three days. He's he mentioned from the very beginning he can only tell the like he's gonna do it in three days time. He's gonna say it exactly as he does it, and we're gonna move on. So we really only see you know very much his point of view. Okay, that's you know. Dangerous, and we've talked about how a lot of things that we've that he's been a lot of things he's been saying is untrustworthy. We're not sure how much you can buy into it. Um, and even the stuff we can see, it seems like he is a very dark character. Every time he gets a little bit angry, he doesn't, you know, threaten to hurt someone or to ruin them. He threatens death. He said he's going to kill Ambrose like a hundred times for. Basically, you know, high school pranks. Um, um, he the first time he actually uses his full potential of his ma- uh, magic, he brutally, through using some really dark malfeasance, dangerous magic, murders a whole bunch of people in the woods. Yes, they're bandits who have been stealing money, but he does some super dark, terrifying magic to kill them. Um, he takes pleasure in the fighting. Uh, he even says that to Tempe when they're. I mean, they're trying to learn the Lothani, which is basically a 
system of thought that makes you do the right things at all time. The one time he got really in trouble with it with the elders is when somebody asked him, do you enjoy fighting? And he said, yes, you're not supposed to enjoy fighting, but he does. Um, um, let's see. I'm scrolling through these notes that somebody else has. Well, you can also bring up the fact that at the very beginning of the um, like meta narrative, when we're learning why we should even care about Quoth's story, we learn that he did something somewhere that essentially started a war. Right in this fantasy world. So generally if you start a war, you've done you something bad. Probably. Yeah. You've probably done something bad. Like I know sometimes we can romanticize the idea that you, I don't know, like fought for love, like the Iliad and Helen's face launched a thousand ships. Like you can do that, but generally it's because you were the, you know, Paris who stole Helen away from her husband mm -hmm. like you were probably the yeah. bad guy if you were the reason and the, war the story is called the king killer chronicle and quoth the character in the story and rothfuss have both said it's a tragedy like there is a dark element to the story we're missing and i just found this quote that um really if you just have never read the book and you just hear this quote you do not think it's coming from the hero it's when he is buying a horse from someone that he needs to travel like 70 miles in one day he says, basically, you know, if you sell me a horse that's, you know, going to throw a limp or whatever and injure me or all this stuff, I'm not coming back for a refund. I will not petition the constable. I will walk back to Emray this very night, set fire to your house. Then when you run out to the front door with your nightshirt and your stockle cap, I will kill you, cook you, and eat you right there on your lawn while all your neighbors watch. He just says this casually because he's in a hurry. Those are not the words of a hero. <laughs> Generally not. Definitely not the traditional hero that you think of. Right. And so, this is him. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I am personally kind of a fan of the theory that he's the villain. Um, the two ones that I like are that either he is, you know, a villain, mm -hmm. um, which I think has a lot of support in the book, or the one that I just kind of think would be an interesting twist for Rothfuss to do, where um, it turns out that the... Um, the uh, the tavern owner who's telling this story mm -hmm. is just making all making of it up. this up. Yeah. Like I, yeah, like um, his, or not necessarily making it up, but like impersonating the actual king killer. Um, so like for example, in the second, is it the first or second book when they're back in the meta narrative, and the um, the tavern gets attacked. That's in the second book, I believe. When the in the skin yeah, jumper in the second attacks one. them, and then. Yeah, and then um, the tavern owner ends up not doing anything, and it's his helper Bast who ends up driving mm -hmm. him off. And there's a whole. I lot. think it would be. I have reread that scene a couple hundred I think it times. Would be at least. <laughs> I've reread that scene so many times, and there's a. If you believe everything in the narrative, there's a whole lot of evidence for some, uh, some something magical blocking his power. But if he's just making it up, there's a whole well, lot putting that like. That, that could very easily be true as well. <laughs> but what I was going to say is I wouldn't be all that surprised if it turns out that um, Bast is, you know, possibly either the king killer himself and for some reason the tavern owner is covering for Ooh. him or um, just something along those lines. Like Bast is actually the important character in this story, right, not the right. tavern owner as we have been. Which that's believe. a very famous fantasy trope is the – the other character who's actually the main focus, like the, the, the mm -hmm. B character who's actually the A character. Yeah. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to scroll through some of these other ones that aren't as fun or don't need as much explanation if you've read the books um, that are favorite theories. One is that he broke his oath to lose his power. Uh, so several times in the story, he has sworn on his power that he won't do something. Um, he hasn't specifically broken any of them in the story, but one of them he made later on in the story to D is that he won't investigate. He will no longer try to find out who her patron is. And that's a big point of contention mm-hmm. in the first and second book is who is this patron who has beat her in the past, um, maybe beats her still and is very, very mysterious. Uh, so there's a favorite theory that he will break that oath and that's where his power went. That's why he doesn't have the power in the, in the framing story. But then there's also, and this is maybe going off topic and me just kind of running down a rabbit hole in my own brain. Uh, in the first book, when we learn that she's being beaten, I don't remember, does he ever actually see any bruises or because I thought that they were always like under they clothing were. and couldn't be visible. They are. Yeah. He's never seen, uh, except um, for the one on her face after the fire. Okay. Okay. And then the only reason he even actually learns that she's being abused is, um, doesn't the, what's it called? The, um, like the, Chthulhu, the Cathay, Chthulhu, yeah, the cafe thing. Yeah. Yeah. That thing like tells yes. him that she is. And that thing is supposed to be like pure yeah. evil. Uh, that thing's supposed to know the so future and be pure evil, but we don't actually know. know for certain that she's actually being right. abused by this guy. This is all in Quoth's head well, and being told to him by a murder. Well, demon. she told him about the time he beat her when um, she escaped the wedding fire, and that was explainable. Oh, that's right. But that one, that one was explainable that's that right. he beat her so that it didn't look like she just escaped unharmed. Um, yes, but yes. she also, when she was sleeping, um, and. Uh, on the the dinner resin that like she was high she talked about him beating her and he doesn't know he he thinks that is talking about it happening multiple times not just that once so he assumes i wonder if rothfuss is using this as like a um like a manufactured reason for Kvothe to eventually do whatever he does like he's coming up with this as a reason to defend his ultimate actions yeah yeah that's a good that would be interesting well, okay, uh, another theory is that the the person, the king he kills is Ambrose, his rival, his like the guy he's threatened to kill after they've had like a prank war. Mm-hmm. Because in the first right. book, he was like you know thirty second in line for the throne or whatever, and then a bunch of people died at a in a boating accident or in a storm, and Ambrose is like twelfth in line for the throne now. Um, so mm-hmm. that's a popular theory is that Ambrose is going to you know, cheat and steal his way into the throne and Quoth is going to have to kill him. Um, I like yeah. that. That's interesting. Uh, another one is that Ash, Master Ash, what is the nickname that we've given to uh, Dinah's um, patron, is actually Cinder, one of the Shandrian, mm-hmm. um, which that's a really popular one. Another riff off of that is that Ash is actually Brayden. Uh, the guy who teaches him tack in the second book. Mm, okay. um, and there's a lot of times that real yeah. quick before you, before you go down another one, um, I want to go back to the Ambrose becomes King and he mm-hmm. kills him. I think if Rothfuss does that, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed in the story. It seems very, yeah, it seems um, very basic. 
And that would be such a convenient way for like him to create some emotional catharsis where Foth gets to kill this guy who's just kind of a right. dick in the book. Like I think that would really – I would hate that question. I think he might kill Ambrose either, anyways. I don't think he's going to become king. He can kill yeah. him. I just don't want Ambrose to become like the main driving right. force of the – I would much rather him have to go back and kill lazy. the mayor. I think that would be much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Which brings me to one of my – Anyways, yeah, okay. keep going. Sorry. We're going to go in the popular yeah, theories. Um, so Braden is Dennis' patron. Um, and there's a lot of – there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down to who the – who is Dennis patron? I think it's all false leads. I don't think we have enough evidence to know who it is yet, but, um, Braden set up as Dennis patron seems very obviously you're supposed to think that at this point because he's conveniently gone at weird times. Um, he has a lot of other things that are like direct. The only other people described that way are her patron, including carrying a cane and being that age and being very uh, like a mysterious traveler, all these things that like line up correctly and something about his name, uh, like his last name being the part of a tree. And we called uh, master Ash, master Ash, because he was naming trees at the time, a bunch of stuff going on with names, um, which brings us into one of my favorite theories that people think, uh, I think this one's basically confirmed is that quoth has a knack for naming so knacks in the story are inherent magic that are extraordinarily rare and that you can't do anything about. It's so inherent that it actually becomes a bane to the people who have it um, at some point. Both in the first book uh, talks about somebody who's in his um, rue troop, his uh, traveling troop that has a knack for dice that can't not roll sevens. No matter what, if he touches the dice, it's going to roll seven. Um, and, uh, so Quoth often is able to name things correctly without really trying to, or meaning to, even if he doesn't understand the language, for instance, he names the crazy student who lives under the school Ari, um, and his, uh, one of the masters there, like is surprised by that because he knows her actual name. Um, he named when he named Master Ash. Master Ash um, D was really surprised um, and taken aback at first. He named his blade. Um, he changed the name of his blade that's had a name for eight hundred years to be Cesura instead of Cesura uh, because that's okay. its actual name. Like he just he is able to correctly know the names of things without trying to. And this plays into magic when he finally names Felurian with with a song, with four notes of a song, and can control her. So there's a lot more evidence of that, but that's one that I feel like is definite. Like he's, yeah, that's confirmed. Or at least he's just really, really good at it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this actually reminds me, um, this is a little off topic, but it's in line with our podcast. So, um, you know, in these stories how Kvothe can like section off parts of his mind to do kind of different yeah, things. Spinning leaf and time. standing stone or whatever the other parts called. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's able to kind of focus on multiple tasks at once. And that oh, yeah, yeah, seems yeah. like yeah. such a novel and in- novel, interesting like thing. Um, that is actually, if you would like another book that I really like that does that, um, 
the Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb did that back in the 90s. And I think she did it really well. And I I might be wrong, but I think she may have invented that um, idea. I like it. For fantasy. It's the ability to believe simultaneously in like compatible things to be able to split your mind. And yeah. Essentially, yeah. It's the whole like sectioning it off so that you can. mm -hmm. Gotcha. I like that. Yeah. So there's your. There's your, your extra uh, recommendation, recommendation for this, <laughs> this episode. Yeah. Um, right. So um, I think I've covered – oh, no, no. This is one, another one that's very common that um, – but it's weirdly split that either Denna or Ari is somehow connected to the moon or is a moon spirit. So weird okay. meta information. The moon, the stealing of the moon – in the create in the creation myth is what started a war between Earth and the Fey, and what caused most of the problems in the story and yeah the universe. Um, and for some reason, the story makes it a point to every time Auri is around, who he calls her, he calls Auri at one point his little moon Fey. Um, but every time Auri or D is around, the chapter just before or just after makes a point to mention that it is a full or a new moon. So they're both very connected to the cycle of the moon, and that might just be you know a femininity thing or something. But there's well, and then the only time that the Fae can cross between the worlds is during the yes, full moon as yeah. well. So there's a there's a lot of symbolism there, and there's a lot of online arguments as to who's actually more connected to the moon. Is it Ari or is it D? Most people seem to think Ari is somehow. A very connected to the moon, some kind of moon spirit, or the I moon mean, herself. Ari's super yeah. weird, but okay. So Kvothe gives Ari her name, and he what what does her name mean? Because he just like comes up with it out. Of the her blue. name is um, you find out way later. Her name is the is short for the name of like a princess that went missing a long time ago. Like, um, not a long time ago, but long enough ago that it'd be the right age. So she is royalty that went crazy at the university. No, I might be thinking of somebody else. Uh, Kvothe gives someone a name, and it has like it's it's basically like an old dead language name, and it means something. I think that's part of it too. Like I, Ari's name has multiple things to it. Um, okay. Let's see. I'm put, pulling this up. Don't worry. I'm gonna look it okay. up. Don't you even worry about a thing here. You can keep talking. Okay. About yeah, you looked that up. I remember there being a lot of stuff going there. on with Ari's name. That I, I mean, I've read all this, all of the fan theories multiple times, and I love this stuff. Mm, okay, no, okay. I got it. Okay, so Kvothe gives Ari her name, um, and it's from a language he doesn't remember, but it means sunny. Sunny. Like S U N. Okay, yeah. So the exact opposite of the moon. <laughs> Interesting. Mm, it's like a reflection right, right. of the sun. The moon is a reflection. Of the that's sun. another. That's another one of the um, the naming things. Uh, that's very. It makes the the knack very obvious. Is when he gets his horse, and he thinks he names it midnight, or dusk, but he messes up the translation and actually names it um, uh, sock, or like one socked. Mm. And you later find out that the horse had been dyed, his leg had been dyed black, so it looked like it was a pure-coated, purebred horse. Um, so he accidentally, right. thinking he named it for its coat, named it the correct name. Um, yeah. And so he just has a knack for that, which is really fun. So those are all theories I didn't know about or didn't wasn't even close to. 
before I read them online. Do you have any of those? Any fan theories that you love? Because I have a bunch I came up with and then um, found evidence for later. <laughs> I think we've kind of covered all the ones that I actually enjoy. Um, I really, really like the idea that he might actually be the bad mm-hmm. guy. Like that one, I think that would actually make me really excited because a lot of the time when an author comes up with a anti-hero as the protagonist of their story, it's very clear that they're the anti-hero from the beginning. Like they're doing something good, but they're doing evil in order to accomplish it. Whereas if in this story, he's actually the villain, he has not been set up right? that way. Because the villains explicitly. never think they're He's the been villain. set up as – what was that? Hello? What did oh, so you say? I said because the villains never think they're the villain, so he, and he's the narrator. So. Yeah, and so I really like the idea that he is the sole narrator of this story, and because we're only getting his viewpoint, we think he's the hero, and then in reality he's the villain. Like I really would be excited if that is how this entire story goes because that's, that's just a cool idea. Yeah. Um, and so I think out of all the fan theories, that one is the one that gets me excited because a lot of the other ones – are um, like little things where they're just trying to figure out, like you said, who is what, like who is Dennis? Yeah, trying to solve the story more than who is Ari and yeah. all these things. And those are like interesting, but they're not exciting to me. I don't usually get bogged down no, in the nature like that, so I don't, I don't see those care. are the, the but those like the I don't I don't want to know the overall ending of the story, but I like playing with the really interesting things that are inside of it that I feel like there's actually enough evidence to make a good guess on. Like I think being able to say Quoth has a knack for naming and here's all the evidence is cool because it's given to you. I think arguing whether or not he broke the oath to lose his power or he's pretending he doesn't have his power is a fun, interesting thing that's in there in the text. I think predicting that Quoth is actually evil it's a little bit trying to break the story all yourself. It's an interesting theory, and if it pay, plays out that way, that would be an amazing way to tell this story. But it's less fun to try to prove because then you're trying, then you're ruining the book for yourself. So I don't like those kind of fan theories as much. Uh, so mm-hmm. the rest of these theories, they're not even full theories. They're just like little ideas I've had that there's some evidence for that I like, and I want to see how they play out. Are ones that I thought of when reading the book and went online to post them to only find out, Oh, somebody else has already thought of this before me <laughs> and made a better point, <laughs> but I still count them as, yeah, the internet's a really big room. It's hard to be the smartest person, yes, there. but I still count these as theories. I came up with while I was reading them. <laughs> oh, if you came to them on your own, like, yeah, but I'm using, it doesn't matter if someone else got right, there first, right. just because they read the book. Before I'm using you. everybody else's evidence. Like, you better. came to the party <laughs> very late. Like you came to this party this is so late. I read these books very late. Yeah. So one of them, this one is very, uh, I'm wrong. I'm almost definitely wrong, but I like my th- version of this theory better than the more researched and well thought out other people's. I think that the folding house mentioned in um, one of the stories while they're traveling through the forest, you know what I'm talking about? Mm, okay. No. So, and while they're it's just one of those extra mythologies yeah, well, yeah right? kind of while they're traveling okay. through the forest they are at the, in the end of the second book they're exchanging stories every night and this is the only story that was told two nights in a row because it got interrupted halfway through um was talking about the ki- guy who stole the moon and one of the things he got from the tinkerer was a folding house but he didn't know what he was doing with it when he tried to unfold it 
and he had it. Oh yeah, so he made it. Yeah, crooked. it's crooked and janky, yeah. and um, the wall like there's rooms that are completely closed off and blah blah. blah. The description of that. Yes, I do. Okay. I do remember the story. I just forgot that that was why it was weird. The description of the folding house to yep. me immediately screamed the under thing and the university in general, because the university began oh, okay. as a library, as a repository of knowledge built around whatever's behind the four post door. Um, sure. And there's like a lot of like, it's hard to find the entrance right. to the under thing. And there's lots of dead And it keeps and unfolding like and the buildings keep, you know, encompassing other buildings. There's entire courthouses that are closed off completely. Mm-hmm. Like that screamed, that's how it works to me. In reality. Well, and if Ari is the moon right. herself, that would explain why she's there at the one time when in that story, the guy is able to keep mm-hmm. her. And see that like the the reality of it is that's probably just No, wait, a, it would be the opposite yeah, of that. He would not be there. No, yeah. that would be the opposite. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah she wouldn't be there then. Never so mind. it's it's actually the university resembling the folding house is actually probably just the the fact that this story these books mirror themselves multiple times. There's not just one example of a thing. It just keeps happening. Um because the folding house is a much better metaphor for the fae itself because the fae exists outside of time how the folding house does it was built by a creator to store the moon exactly like the folding house was built to snare the moon like it was it fits mm-hmm. a lot better as the folding house is a metaphor for the fae but i when i first read it i heard it as the university is the folding house it fit like the description fit so well to me that i loved it um so it's probably wrong that's cool but i like i it. like that yeah oh i like it though I would agree with you. That's a good. That's a good one. Uh, okay, so. this one is. Um, I don't know if it's a theory as much as just something that's very obvious that I can't wait to see how it plays out. Is that music is obviously very important to the character. Um, it's important to the storytelling, but I think it's so much more important than we're thinking about. I think this whole story may be framed as a song. I think there's a bunch of stuff going on with music. But stuff we know that's been dealt out to us in the text is that there is magical music. We know there's magical music. Um, the One of the short stories, old How Old Holly Came to Be, is specifically about magical music. There is something in the universe called the singing tree. We have no idea what it is, but it's been mentioned a couple times. There are things in the universe that the Shandrian, the big bad of the series, are afraid of, and they're referred to as singers. Florian's name is four notes of music. So we've seen Quoth do musical magic. And then even every time he's called the name of the wind, he's compared it to a musical site. Um, and the fact that he played Leaf on the Wind before he ever even knew about naming in that way um, is how he ended up finding uh, Spinning Leaf, his you know brain cutoff point that lets him see names. So I really think that um, music in general and his understanding of music is going to be the linchpin of something going on. Like it's obviously way too mm-hmm. important for – yeah. No idea what that is. It's not a fully formed theory, but music is very, very important. <laughs> that could be interesting and it would make sense with the overarching story because his dad was really into music and then he – obviously pays his way through college by being good at music and it's just woven through right. the story the whole time so yeah that could make for an interesting subplot. and early on in the the, the turned man yeah, the inciting incident when the shandrian kills his troop and family 
um, the the leader of them says to the others, "Who keeps you safe from the uh, the namers, the emir, and the singers?" And we've met namers, we've met the emir, or we've seen we know what the emir are. We have not met or even really seen anything about what the singers are. <laughs> so okay. that's something's probably going to happen in the third book. So yeah. And that's not that's not the right quote. I think he actually mentions the Tempe's people. Um, so he mentions a couple different groups that we meet later on, but one of them is singers, and it's the only one we haven't heard of. All right. Um, speaking of Tempe, this is a fun one. Um, I think Tempe is gay. Okay. Um, so Tempe is from a culture. For those of you who haven't read the books that are still sticking around an hour into this for some reason. Um, Stimpy is from a culture that is very, um, what's the word? The opposite of the patriarchy, maternal, no. Matriarchal. It's a very matriarchal society. Um, uh, they don't even have the word father. Women or men just aren't involved and they don't believe men are involved in the, uh, creating a baby process. Um, and, uh, men are very much second class. So, uh, and Tempe is looked down upon even amongst that society and all the references to it about it. He doesn't super understand. Um, Koth doesn't even when he goes to um, what the heck is the Tempe village? What are, what is that people called? The Lathani? I don't remember. Yeah. Honestly. So whenever he goes there, they're lo- he's looked down upon and it's like, he's a good fighter, but he's not the best, but there's a certain derision directed towards him that goes beyond that, that he doesn't understand. Um, Tempe is extremely open with his nudity. Um, at first, just they thought that was just you know him being from a weird culture that's outside of the way. But often uh, he uh, after that po- moment, he still stays nude a couple times when it's just him and Quoth. Uh, so maybe he's not gay, but he is in love with Quoth, but I think he's probably just gay and it's looked down upon in his society. Um, Tempe, you learn that music is seen as an extremely intimate thing in his society that is not done. And Tempe basically asks him to teach him how to play. Like, so, what you later learn in that is something only done between lovers and close family. You learn that later on. And Tempe specifically asks him to teach him music, uh, which I think that's the strongest evidence for it. Um, and then there's a couple times other things that it's just very strange, like Quoth is acting, asking about how, uh, you know, how to interact with other people in his society. And he's showing them, you know, the distance you would stand between people, uh, whereas teacher or student and equal and Quoth asks how close Tempe would stand to him for polite company. And, uh, Tempe just says complicated and signs the sign for like embarrassment and doesn't do anything like he's blushing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a point in a fight where um, um, there. Oh yeah. It's the, it's the Florian thing. So when Florian shows up, um, uh, one of the guys in the group can't run because he's got like a broken leg. The other one is attacked by the girl he's in love with and knocked down. So he can't chase down after her. And Tempe is the only one that just stands still and doesn't do anything. Quoth takes off after it. So it's this beautiful, naked, fey woman 
the symbol of all sex, and Tempe is the only man in the group that doesn't even try to go after her. Um, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So this is a theory that's been built up, uh, and there's more evidence that that person is um, looking over this person to see if they missed anything. Um, hmm. Oh, um, so when you mentioned the time when they're running to Ademre, that's the name of his village, or their you know community, um, it says that Tempe was watching Quoth closely enough to catch him when he was about to fall. Much the same way Quoth caught Dinna before she lost her footing. Um, and Dinna specifically says that, you know, it's a sign of great affection. And that's when she noticed that he, you know, had feelings for her that first time because he was watching her so close he knew when she was about to fall, even then she didn't. And that's echoed when Tempe does that, but Quoth doesn't put two and two together. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Fair I enough. had that when I was reading the book, I thought the, that, it makes it a point that Tempe's culture is weird and they don't have social boundaries the same way we do. But um, it's the it's when Tempe asked him to play his music is when I caught it. I was like, I think Tempe has the hots for Quoth. Um, and then so I was looking up fan theories one day and I put at the Tempe, Tempe might be in love with Quoth. And I'm just like, that's when I started adding all things up. And I was like, he also didn't run after Felurian. He might just be gay. And that's why his society doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. So that's just a fun little one that doesn't impact the story at all, but I think is very easy to see. Okay. Fair enough. Yes. Two more. Like any other, any any other evidence? No, I don't have any other evidence for that. (laughs) No, 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 no. I was done with that. Any other fan? Yes. I have two more specifically. Um, One is just rings. I said, I had an aside about rings when you mentioned Lord of the Rings. Rings are weirdly huge in this story. They are everywhere, um, and it doesn't really. And each culture and each society has a little bit different reason they're everywhere, and we don't really understand. Like, I mean, they're just ubiquitous in this world. So, um, he makes it a very odd point early on that his parents were more married than anyone wearing a ring. His parents are married without a ring. Um, in all the tabler and the great stories you hear, which is their like Superman stories. Um, he's wearing rings of power. Uh, and in the real story, the real world of this story, the rings that you wear signif- in the university, the rings that you wear signify what power you have. So the rings themselves aren't power, but you, they show you what your powers you have. Um, in the mayor's court, rings are status symbols that you display or wear to show favor, and they get very complicated cultural rules about which ones are given to who and you know you give a silver to someone you're equal you give a gold to your better and a bronze to your lesser all that jazz um and by the end of that section quoth gets two very very special rings one that is never to be worn because it's so degrading um and one is that a symbol of a debt that can never be paid because it's so like so much honor um and he then promptly pops the ring he's never supposed to wear on his finger because he's Quoth and he breaks the rules. Um, often when Quoth is talking to Dinna, he nervously makes her grass rings and makes a point that he's weaving rings for her. Half of the entire conflict between him and Ambrose and a huge portion of his relationship with Dee and even kind of how you really get to interact with all of his friends is all about Dena's ring that was stolen and returned and lost um, and given to the the 
the lone shark, like Dinah's ring is the reason a lot of the incidents in the second, or the yeah, the second book even happen. Um, Ari at one point gives him a ring that she tells holds secrets. It, uh, and he asks her what secrets it is. And she says, it doesn't tell secrets. It holds secrets. And plus they're not yours. Finally, um, or maybe even primarily, the Edimaru are often referred to, are called all the time the unbroken circle, the 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 ring that can't be can't be worn. And then there is the lackless rhyme. Which do you remember this? Riddle? Yes. Yeah. So it's two versions of a riddle we hear a couple times that are supposed to open some unopenable box or unopenable door. It's a big mystery of what that even is, too. But the better version of it is seven things stand before the entrance to the lackless door. One of them a ring unworn. One a word that is first worn. One a time that must be right. One a candle without a light. One a sun who brings the blood. One a door that holds the flood. One a thing tight held in keeping that comes which comes with sleeping. Uh, so the very first thing in it is a ring unworn. The other version of that calls it a ring that's not for wearing. So a ring is important. Rings in general are important. He even jokes the very last text we have in the main books are that he's already wearing a ring of air because he, or a ring of the wind. And you don't know that he's lying or joking. He just kind of tells him that he's wearing one. Um, so why are rings important? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, and then I saw someone talk about a ring unworn, a ring that's not for wearing, can refer to Quoth himself, because he's the product of a marriage without a ring, so a ring that's not worn. He's a member of the Dimaru, which is one unbroken circle, a ring that can't be worn. And he has music magic. He can make things ring, the sound, um, which is a ring that can't or won't be worn. And so, yeah, just... The fact that I went into way too much detail and <laughs> said every reference to rings I could think of. Yeah, you've just been rambling. Yes, but you just been that rambling. shows you how like thematically in depth this book is. That's just references to rings. We have no idea the importance of it, but it's everywhere. And every little thing I think they're a red herring and you just wasted fifteen minutes of possibly. life. But that's how crazy detailed these stories are, and that's how these stories can drive you crazy, is because there's so much like echoing of things in it. Like even just rings everywhere. It's all over the place. So I think I think a ring that can't be worn probably refers directly to quoth, or it's a certain sound. It's some kind of magic ringing. Um so, yeah, that's a random theory, but it, there's okay. something there. It, rings are too important. All right, so what's your what's your last theory? And this one, I'm going to limit you to a minute. <sighs> no, because it's not my last. I have two more. I forgot about one that we've already kind of talked about. So this is my last – You get to This is my last one. small one, and then we'll talk about what we think we want from the ending of the story, which is my actual last theory. So this is, this is a small one uh, is that Caduceus is a good guy. So in the mayor's court – the his um his like physician his university trained physician is named Caduceus and the big thing that Quoth endears himself to the mayor by proving that Caduceus was poisoning him I don't think he was poisoning him I think Caduceus is actually a good guy um 
and other people have pointed out, of course, this is a theory that other people had, but um, his ultimate fate is unexplained. You don't really know what happens to him. It says he died in like a fire where he somehow blinded someone or like poked out their eye. This guy's supposed to be able to do magic, but you don't really see him do magic. You just see him make potions. And somehow he fights this really strong, you know, captain of the guard. And the only injury he comes away with is losing an eye, which is a weird injury to get in the first place. So something strange is happening there overall. But secondly, before he goes to the mayor's court, the last thing he learns in the university, something that the author and Quoth have to say three times out loud, is that he knows nothing about alchemy. He specifically has to say – his friends make him say that multiple times. Um, but then he saves the day because he believes that Caduceus's medicine um, – has lead in it, and lead is poisonous. But we've just mentioned that he knows absolutely nothing about alchemy, and if Caduceus' medicine is alchemical, then Koth would not understand how it works. Caduceus makes a point that he has to drink it warm, which Koth, in all his arrogance, says you know that would not affect you know the quality of medicine, whether you drink it cold or warm, which he doesn't know that. He's a good physiker, but again, he doesn't understand alchemy at all. Um, then when you get to the, uh, the Cathay person, it talks about how if you knew the, if you want to get, meet the emir, you need to stay close to, um, uh, to the mayor. What if Caduceus was a member of the emir and he's not really poisoning the mayor, but he's doing something to keep the mayor sick or keep him away because, once he gets healthy, he immediately marries the lackless and gets access to the lackless box, which might be the key to open the four-post door and you know cause the apocalypse, which is how everything is implied. So, quoth, revealing this and undoing it could have been a very bad thing, could have set all this stuff in motion. But I don't think the mayor's healer was actually a bad guy. I think there's a bunch of stuff that says he we're missing something in that part of the story. Um, the person, another person who had this theory pointed out that uh, there's a crocodile hanging in his lab, which according to this um, book called the tough guide to fantasy land, which is a text Patrick Rothfuss references a lot. Um, always underline always indicates a good wizard. If they have an alligator in their lab, and that was a big point of the introduction scene for Caduceus is they had an alligator hanging from his lab. And the final point of the theory here is that uh, his name is a very – has confusing and like secret layers. So a Caduceus um, in the real world, in our world, is often ref- – You've far exceeded I don't care. a minute and a half. A Caduceus is seen as a, uh... a, a medical symbol. You know, the snake wrapped around a staff. But that's not actually a caduceus. That's the rod of a cephalus. That's the actual symbol of, a, of medicine. The caduceus is Hermes' staff. It has nothing to do with healing. So, like, there's some layers there to even how, the, how Patrick Rothfuss named him. I just think that's a really interesting goldmine of we're missing something there. <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> Thank God. I was trying to get you to stop, but you just kept I going. love this one. This one was one of my favorite, like, 
I figured I figured something out. Yeah, but like at this point, you're so far down the rabbit hole that you have lost me. That's fair. So I don't even know what we're talking about. You don't anymore. remember that whole section? No, not even a little bit. And uh, you were just rambling, so I couldn't even uh, chime in. I can't tell you that. that was like that was the whole second act of the second book. Yeah, see, the longest, like, the last time I read this, like, actually read this book was in, like, 2013. Okay. Gotcha. Well, (laughs) sorry. Hey, I think I've done (laughs) remarkably well so far. It is not my fault that you just started rambling 80 minutes Well, hopefully someone who has read the books more recently or is obsessive about accidentally memorizing books that they've read will appreciate that little theory that they may have never heard before because I love it. I think this that's one of the cleverest little things that's been thrown in there. Huh. So to wrap this up, if you have listened to this far and you haven't read the books, go read them right now. Um, we'll wait. Uh, but otherwise, what are your predictions for how it ends? How do you want it to end? We've kind of already talked about this, but to wrap it up, you should say that. How do I want the book series yeah, to wrap up? How would up? you like the series to end? What would you hope? What do you hope happens? Um, in the next I would really like it to end in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good answer. Thank you. Mm, no, that's very well. But but seriously, like, what is something you hope happens in the next book, or you hope happens in the story? <laughs> Uh, I think I've already ex- like gone through that. I think, um, you know, I would love it if he was the villain. Like that would just be a really cool end to it. I would also really like it if he isn't both. Um, I would be fine with either of those because I think both of them would just be a really cool one. Um, the villain one would be interesting because that's a great reason for this to be told from the first person point of view. Mm-hmm. And the um, he isn't Kvothe version of the story would be great because the whole story, the whole book series is about telling stories. So I think it would be phenomenal if this whole thing was just a yarn being spun by a bored tavern, tavern right. owner. No, those are all really good. And that would fit with kind of my hopes for the series. I don't want there to be an answer. I think I get the most joy out of these books, rereading them, looking for something I missed and or something that you know sheds new light on a random idea I've had. As you can tell, I've had a lot of random ideas. So I want it to have an ambiguous or twisty ending that is at least one more puzzle. I want you to have to go back and reread everything. You know, I made you watch Primer, right? That time travel movie? I don't remember. Uh, I, I okay. literally don't remember. If you've never seen Primer, it explains everything about a third of the way through and then ends with a couple more, like, giving you explanation that you almost immediately want to rewatch the movie because you want to try to get it. Okay. And I feel like that will be the only way this book is satisfying is if it ends with another one of those, some kind of reveal or recontextualization or just a ambiguous thing that happens enough at the end that I am not fully satisfied that I have to keep going through and reading it. Like I get too much joy of diving deep into these books that if at the end, everything's laid out and all the questions are answered, I will be annoyed. (laughs) 
I don't care if it ends with tragedy or happy. I think it's been said to be a tragedy from the get-go. So I think if it's surprisingly a happy ending, that'd be cool too. But I just don't want there to be all the questions answered by the end. But I want I, I, don't know, I want there to be more of a mystery to dive into. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Will you have anything else? We've been talking for about an hour and a half. <laughs> We've been talking for a while. Um, I don't have anything else on this book. I think this horse has been Yes, killed. we have thoroughly beat the death of these horses. And I, I, I enjoyed that quite that a bit. Um, I guess the only final thing would be if you want to talk any more about the Lightbringer trilogy. I'm not done with the book. I'm so close to being done with the book. I feel like it would be pointless to do a, um, a read-along section here because then the next time I'll only have like three chapters left. Um, so I think we should hold off on that and I can give a whole, maybe we can do a whole, another one of those episodes. That's a whole full spiel on the series, um, in the next couple episodes. Just have okay. an episode. Yeah. That's fine with me. And that could be a good, that could be a good, uh, I don't know, a good special episode for next season. That is just, um, a deep dive into a series. Plus it's, uh, it, it works because that was the very first book we, talked about or you ever recommended so opening the next season with that will be fun to just uh, i finally read them all how about you is there any books i recommended this season that you have read or have started that you plan on that you like enough to talk about <laughs> you know the one book that i i still actually am going to read um i just haven't gotten around to it so i've already started the starless mm-hmm. sea um which we've mentioned the one book that I really do want to start reading and I keep meaning to borrow it from a coworker, but I've just been swamped with life um, is survivor. Okay. I really do want okay. to read that book. Well, yeah, let's do that. So that one is then like, as soon as I'm done reading the book I'm currently reading, or I might just throw this book away cause it's kind of <laughs> boring. I think I'll probably jump to survivor. I'm really interested. All right, well, in let's plan on that for early in season two is a, um a conclusion or not a conclusion but a okay i actually read this and a re a touch base with the um books we've recommended to each other fair enough sounds good all right me. so there for there you have it people things to look forward to um follow us on twitter at book underscore pod facebook at book report podcast or instagram at the book report pod um and thank you like share and subscribe tell friends about this Sorry for being very, very nerdy, but I don't know what else you came here for. Why would you apologize for that? I don't think anyone <laughs> listens to this unless they know what they're signing I up for. So feel like even if go they take knew, your apology and throw it out the well, window. Even if they knew what they were signing up for, I went pretty much full nerd in this episode, and I don't let myself do that a lot. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> when you started talking about the the whatever that was, like at minute 80 or 78, I spaced out. I don't know anything you said. My brain glossed over, and I'm pretty sure I stared at the wall with like drool coming out of my mouth. I very rarely let myself go full nerd, um, but the capacity is always there, just under the surface. Oh, that's not true. You started doing it one time um, with my wife, and she just shut you down because she wasn't having any of it. I did do. What were you even talking about? But she asked me a question. I don't know, and she. <laughs> literally said i didn't realize you were still talking <laughs> if someone asks me a question i feel that gives me permission to fully nerd out with my answer 
which is never the case, but I feel like it does anyways. No. Um, you should honestly have like a timer that you keep <laughs> on hand that you can start and say, okay, I'm going to answer this question, but I'm setting a three-minute timer, and then you have to stop me at the end of three minutes. Because I think after three minutes is where most people are like, all right, and I've yeah, stopped caring. Yeah. I don't know enough about this. I think you want – It's like – it's kind of like when you are – I don't know. You go over to someone's house, and they say, hey, so – like you're a millennial, you like Pokemon, and you're like, oh man, I loved, I loved version red. That was my jam. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Let me show you this original foil leaf Charizard that I have. And they pull it out, and you're like, oh, that's awesome. And then they go back into the closet and they pull a out binder full. like six yeah. binders of Pokemon cards. And then they just start showing you every single page of the <laughs> Pokemon cards. And you're like, all right, I only signed up for the Charizard. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know anything <laughs> other than the Gen right. 1 Pokemon. And this guy has started talking about things that I didn't know existed. Yeah. yeah. I, that's, but I can't back out that's of me. It. That, that is what I do sometimes. <laughs> I remember at one point in college, you, I, I think it was just when the CW shows were all starting. You asked my who my favorite superhero was, and you had to stop me talking like mistake. twenty that minutes. That was the biggest later. mistake of my life. That was the biggest <laughs> mistake of my life. Yeah, I know better now. If I need a superhero <laughs> question answered, it I always ask yes. a very, very specific, very pointed question. You even even before every now and then after a Marvel credits, you'll be like, "Hey, what did this mean?" Instead, now you're just like. Who was this a reference to? And you'll look up the rest on your own. You don't know. You don't ask open-ended questions anymore. <laughs> no, it's very much like it's going to be a four-word answer. That's it. Well, at least you've learned to not let me I'm indulge smart, my inner super nerd. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for indulging me. If you've listened this far. <laughs> And we'll see y'all next season. Bye, guys.